I'm going to go ahead and read you the 95th Psalm before we have our sermon today. This is Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. Then his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, our sermon today is Genesis 49. It's verses 28 through 33, and this is entitled, Jacob Breathed His Last. So starting in verse 28, we read these words. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave which is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There he buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field in the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. When we talk about being in someone or in something, we mean that we are a part of that in an intimate way. If we are in the military, we're a part of the military. We're entitled to all of the benefits and all of the responsibilities that being in the military entails. We are accountable to the line of authority in the military as well. And we are responsible for our conduct, which is laid out in specific manuals, which detail exactly what we should do, how we should act, and even how we should cut our hair. And I served in the U.S. Air Force with a person that's visiting today. I've got a brother that's retired from the Air Force, and I've got a friend up in the front row here that uh, was also in the United States Air Force. And I want to ask any of them, do you remember what the regulation was that covered dress and appearance in the military? 3510. You never forget it. That's one of those things. When you're in the military, you are a part of it. And everything about your life is dictated to the point where you never forget these things. Now, if one of us was in a rock band, everyone would identify us with that band. Our every action would be associated with the band collectively. And all of the fun things that go along with being in a rock band would fall on us individually, just as with every member. This is what it means to be in something. It is as if we're fully immersed in it as if we were to dive into the ocean and be completely covered by it. Today, we are going to look at how being in something or someone from a biblical perspective is more important than any other thing that we could ever participate in. Our text verse for today comes from the 116th Psalm. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. 
In our verses today, we will see the final moments of the life of Jacob. They are moments of a man who is living and dying in faith and in anticipation of great things to come in the future, even after his death. In other words, his hopes transcend this earthly existence and are rooted in a great reality, one which is eternal in nature. The hope of Jacob is the hope of the Messiah, and the hope of Messiah is realized in the person of Jesus Christ. No other person can give us this hope, and to not be found in him means a very sad eternity awaits. But in Christ, there is hope which has its basis in God's sure word. And so let's turn to that precious and superior word again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is the 12 tribes of Israel. This is verse 28. It begins with these words. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. At the beginning of chapter 49, which is about five sermons ago, these words were recorded. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Since that verse, the blessings have been pronounced. Our first verse of today then shows us the completion of the thought from all the way back in verse 1. And here we see the first use of the term, the 12 tribes of Israel in the entire Bible. In this case, it is what is known as a metonym. A metonym is a word, a name, or an expression which is used as a substitute for something else with which it's closely associated. We use the term Hollywood when we speak of the film industry. We use the term Washington when we're speaking about the U.S. government. In this case, the term the 12 tribes of Israel is speaking of the tribes which will descend from these 12 sons who were just blessed. This was not a mistake, nor is it something that we should pass over quickly as if it were unimportant. Instead, it is a prophetic announcement that the son's descendants belong to the sons. They are in their fathers before them, and those fathers are in turn in Jacob. And therefore, we can see that the prophecy upon the sons is to be applied to the descendants. The two are inseparably linked. From a biblical perspective, we should ask, why is this important? The answer is that the concept of being in someone in the Bible indicates being represented by them. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read this about Levi being in Abraham, who is what? Is grandfather, great-grandfather? Grandfather, no, great-grandfather, who gave a tithe to someone named Melchizedek. Now listen to this. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people, meaning all of Israel, according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all con contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men, meaning the uh, sons of Levi, mortal men receive the tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives the tithes, paid the tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi came from Jacob, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham. And he, it is said that the tithes of Israel are paid to this person, Melchizedek, three generations before he was even born. 
Time and again, the Bible uses this concept of being in someone to remind us that we are all descendants of Adam by blood, and thus we are in Adam. This is why there are such meticulous genealogies recorded in both Testaments of the Bible. It is to show the connection which goes all the way back to Adam who was created by God. When Adam sinned, we therefore sinned in Adam. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5. Here's what he says. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is also one of the reasons why two genealogies are listed for Jesus. One is in Matthew and one is in Luke. It is proof that he is truly and fully human and thus qualified to be our representative for human matters. But he is also truly and fully God and therefore he can mediate our human matters with his infinite father. Such metonyms as Adam, which represents all of mankind and the 12 tribes of Israel, which are represented by the 12 sons of Israel, are constant reminders of the importance of Jesus Christ. And the reason is that if we are in Adam, we are dead. We are spiritually disconnected to God. A transfer has to take place to reconcile this, or we will be forever in Adam. The wonder of God's plan is that if we are found in Christ, then the spiritual connection is restored, and thus eternal life is also restored. Reading the words, the 12 tribes of Israel, right here, asks us to think on a completely different level than what the mere sound of the words is when it comes off of our lips. Instead, the Bible is calling our attention to the grandeur of God's plans for the people of the world in the five simple words, the 12 tribes of Israel. A beautiful example of this, right from the book of Hosea, will show us how God looks at us being in someone. At the beginning of Hosea chapter 11, the Lord uses the singular when speaking of the people of Israel. Okay, that's when they were called out of Egypt. Though singular, it is speaking of the whole. Here's how it's recorded. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But he called the entire group of Israel out. And then just a few verses later, speaking of Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph, a single individual, look at how God views his descendants. I taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim's a single person, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. And I stooped and fed them. Such terminology is everywhere in the Bible, and it reminds us that we cannot change who we are. We are in our Father, who is the son of Adam, and thus we are in Adam. There is nothing that we can do about it, but God can. And so the admonition for every person here and every person that watches this on YouTube is, O oh, fallen son of Adam, come to Jesus Christ. He will make all things new. Verse 28 continues, and this is what their father spoke to them. It is to these 12 sons of Jacob as he spoke his blessing, and he did so under the influence of the Spirit of God. The blessings were fulfilled in the descendants, and they are also fulfilled in both the witness of the stars, as we saw through those five last sermons, as well as in the precious pages of the Bible, which testify to the work of God in Jesus Christ. 
Only God who knows the future could have laid out these prophecies so exactly and so specifically. And yet Moses records the words which say, and this is what their father spoke to them. God's gracious hand was upon Jacob, directing him and speaking through him as the two harmoniously blended into sounds and words of prophecy. As we saw during those 12 individual blessings, every line pointed to the work of God in Christ. It is amazing how carefully and meticulously everything has been laid out for this very purpose. Verse 28 continues, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. The 12 sons were blessed at this time, but prior to this, remember Joseph's two grandsons or Jacob's two grandsons, Joseph's sons were adopted into the family line and thus became independent tribes. Therefore, depending on how the tribes are listed, there often seems to be confusion in who the 12 tribes are, but there is none. Specific names are used at various times for specific reasons. These 12 sons were blessed independently of Joseph's sons because they are the sons who are witnesses in the constellations which reveal God's plan. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 33, during Moses' blessing, one of his sons, Simeon, is going to be omitted. And Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, will take Joseph's place. In Numbers chapter 2, when counting the tribes, Simeon is going to be retained and Levi is going to be omitted. And Ephraim and Manasseh will again take the place of their father Joseph. And in Revelation, a different order altogether is going to be used. Each time there are reasons for these changes, not errors, not blunders, but wisdom and harmony as God unfolds his plan of the ages right before our eyes. Wisdom is displayed in the pages of God's word. Every detail carefully selected to show us about Jesus. It is all about him and he is our Lord. Surely God has so revealed these wondrous treasures to us. Search the pages. Look carefully through each line. There we see God's beautiful redemption plan as if it were a feast on every precious word we can dine and see the splendor of how God became a man. Redemption is found in him. To him, let us look, fixing our, upon him our eyes and thoughts and heart and searching diligently for him in this precious book to the Bible, to the message, to the wisdom it does impart. Our second thought today, the cave of Machpelah, which is verses 29 through 32. Verse 29 says, then he charged them. The word charged here in Hebrew is the Hebrew word tzabah. It is a command or an order. It is the same word which was used back in Genesis chapter 2, which records these very ominous words, the first words ever spoken to man by God. And the Lord God commanded that word tzabah, the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Like the commandment of God to Adam, Jacob is not asking, but he is rather instructing. This is what you are to do. It is of such importance to him that they are spoken with the last breaths of his life. They must follow through with his words. Verse 29 continues, And said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. His words right here are words of faith. To die is one thing. To say, I'm returning to the dust, merely implies that we're a product of the ground under our feet and that we will again be a part of that same ground. But to say, I am being gathered to my people implies that his people have not merely returned to the dust. Instead, it's a form of anticipation to where his people are 
there he will be as well. Now, whether you believe in evolution or creation, you are still acknowledging that your existence is a part of something more than just the dust. If evolution, then your people like you are simply random chance, which is a God all its own. But if you, like Jacob, believe in creation, then you are in essence returning to your God when you are gathered to your people. And this is exactly what Solomon speaks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me read this to you. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Jacob is voicing faith in his creator by saying that he will be gathered to his people. He is from Isaac, who is from Abraham, who, well, you get it, all the way right back to Adam, and then to God who breathed the breath of life into him. Jacob is dying in faith. Verse 29 continues, Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. For this, in the next three verses, Jacob is going to give exceedingly specific detail about the cave where he wishes to be buried. All he really needed to do was say, well, bury me in the cave with my fathers. Maybe add in Abraham and Isaac and the rest of the family. And that would have been more than sufficient, wouldn't it? But instead, he gives names, he gives places, and he gives specific details. And because he does, it is asking us to evaluate his words in exactly the same detail. The spirit of prophecy is speaking, and he asks us to think, and we will. Before we finish this thought, we will understand why he spoke so exactingly. There are two parts to a man, not three. I want you to know that. People speak of the body, the soul, and the spirit. But the man is a soul-body unity. It's a doctrine known as anthropological hylomorphism, just a big word which means a soul-body unity. The soul is eternal, and the body is temporal. If the soul is reconnected to God before death, then the destination will be a happy one. If it's not, then it will be a sad one. Jacob's soul was to be gathered to his fathers. His body was to be buried with them as well. He's firmly noted as a distinction here between the two, and this distinction is confirmed throughout all the rest of Scripture. Paul's words to the Corinthians show us this explicitly. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, meaning our body, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Jacob's soul will now be naked without a body. But his request to his sons demonstrates that he is absolutely certain that it's not always going to be this way. He's a man looking forward to the wonderful promise of God which came just moments after the fall of man. He's looking to the promise made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to him. He's looking forward to the Messiah. Verse 30, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. The record of this purchase is found in Genesis chapter 23 and is recorded at the time of the death of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. Jacob has already said the cave is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and yet Abraham bought the field when he bought the cave. He then says that it is in the field of Machpelah and that it is before Mamre in Canaan. The term before here is alpenay, or in the face of. So literally, it is in the face of Mamre. He then notes that the field was bought from Ephron the Hittite as a possession. The detail is exacting, and it shouts out for us to look, 
to research and determine why. One commentator said this. This is his thought on why all these specific details are given. He said, because they had been some years absent thence, meaning they've been down in Egypt, and this is many years earlier that they were buried up in Canaan, and to express how much his heart was set on this matter, and thereby to oblige them to the more careful performance of his command. Another said all the detail was given because someone may have laid claim to the cave and they'd need proof in the details to prove otherwise. But details don't prove anything without proof. I mean, unless you get a certificate of purchase, it's not going to do anything. Neither of these explanations is credible. The words are too exact and they're intended for us to contemplate in detail. Verse 31, then they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. I want to tell you that the importance of every single word recorded in the Bible can be seen in the verse that I just read. The death of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac are each recorded in varying detail. However, there is no record of the death or burial of Rebekah or Leah until this verse right here. This shows us that God selects specific details for specific reasons. Those things which are unimportant in regards to his plans are simply ignored. People, places, times, events are only recorded to lead us to understanding the work of God in Christ. No word is missing and no word which is recorded is superfluous. Verse 32, the field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. Unexpectedly, Jacob refers to the purchases being from the sons of Heth. Ephron is a Hittite or a son of Heth and so this seems to be unnecessary, but it isn't. Just like everything else that he has said, it is there for a reason. Now, to fully understand the details surrounding all of Jacob's words, what you really should do is go back and watch the sermon on Genesis 23. There, all of this detail that Jacob relays right now concerning his burial spot is given, along with a lot more. The entire chapter pointed, though, to the work of God in Christ. Abraham at that time pictured Christ, who made a purchase on behalf of humanity. Jacob relays enough of the details today for us to be reminded of this. It is the hope that all true believers should have and should carry with them. Here then are the names and their meanings, okay? Ephron means of the dust. He's a picture of Adam who was created from the dust, and is, which is recorded right there at the very beginning of the Bible in chapter 2. Therefore, he represents all of us. Remember, I went through this detail of saying that we are in Adam. And I explain that for a reason. He is identified here as a Hittite. Hittite means terror. The verb which Heth or Hittite is derived from is usually used to indicate a depletion of strength or a taking away of an essential support or support structure. Thus, Jacob calling him Ephron the Hittite is showing us a picture of Adam who has lost his essential support. In other words, it's a picture of the fall of man, which brought us to a state of terror in the presence of God. From this fallen man, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah. The meaning of Machpelah is double. It signifies the double delivery from death which Jesus procured for his people. It didn't come just to procure the title deed of the world for Jewish people, but he did it for Gentiles as well. His death filled this double role. Now, I need to read you this from Ephesians 2 so that you understand what I'm talking about. This is Paul's writing in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning Jewish people made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope in the world and with no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Think of this cave, this double cave, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The next word mentioned is mamre. Mamre means bitter or strong, The idea of bitterness is one of being a strong taste or a strong experience. Mamre represents the bitter, fallen world which Jesus is coming to reclaim. After this, Canaan is named. This comes from the verb kana, which means humbled or subdued or lowly. The Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament says that it denoted bringing a proud and recalcitrant people or spirit into subjection. It therefore pictures those people who are humbled. After this, it again mentioned that the cave was bought from Ephron the Hittite, repeating what had already been said. Then after that, the names of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah were all mentioned as being buried there. Each is found to be in this cave, a cave which looks forward to the resurrection. With the inclusion of Jacob in the tomb, there will be the three great patriarchs and their three wives, All right, each of which is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Now, if you add that up, three plus three, that becomes six. That's six people, male and female, who then represent all human beings. Six is, as we have seen consistently throughout the book of Genesis, the biblical number of man. And then, as a follow-up, he mentions one more time that the field and the cave were purchased. They have a new owner. The old owners were the sons of Heth. As I said, the term Heth is where the word Hittite comes from. It means terror. And it's a picture of all of the people of the world who are in Adam and who live in fear of death because they cannot meet God's standard of the law. At the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the people trembled in terror and they asked not to hear God speak to them directly again. And since the law was given, men have continued to live in terror because there is no way that we can live up to its standards. Paul explains that very clearly in the book of Romans and in Galatians chapter 3. The law merely condemns all people to death. It is from these sons of Heth, or sons of terror, that the purchase was made. Hebrews chapter 2 explains the terror of death which permeates all of mankind. Here's what it says. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This cave then is symbolic of the earth, which is the repository for the dead. This is seen time and time again in the Bible. Jacob knows that his body is going to that repository now to be buried with his people. And so he begins by asking to be buried in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Instead of saying the cave that was bought by Abraham, He first says it this way. It is a picture of the world as we now live. Next, he calls it the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is 
It's showing us that it is a double cave. It contains Jew and Gentile, male and female, all who are redeemed by the Lord. This cave is before or literally in the face of Mamre, meaning bitterness. It is the state of the world. There is bitterness and death, and there is bitterness all the way until we meet our death. But it is in the land of Canaan. It is in the land of those who are humbled and brought into subjection before the Lord. And because of this, he again notes that the field was bought by Abraham from Ephron the Hittite, the man filled with terror, who is from the dust in the land of the humbled. The cave was bought from him. There in that cave, six were buried, and there the field and the cave were bought from the sons of Heth, the sons of terror. So now that I've explained it in two different ways, taking all of the terminology and com combining it into what I believe Jacob is saying under the influence of the Spirit, this is what I come up with in the verses. Follow along. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of the man of dust, the fallen man who is filled with terror in the cave that is in the field of double, Jew and Gentile, which is in the face of bitterness in the land of the humbled, which the father of many nations, meaning that's Abraham's name, the father of many nations bought with the field of the fallen man of the dust, the one filled with terror as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of terror. So you see, it's making a picture for us to see all the work of God in Christ in one one paragraph. Everything that has been said here is a recalling of what was given back in Genesis 23. It is Jacob's hope in the future while being planted in the ground in the present. Through the Spirit, he tells his sons and thus to us that he is a seed that is waiting to sprout forth from this spot to eternal life someday, all because of the work of the Messiah. This is the hope of the redeemed, that though our body will someday be laid in the dust, we are promised and we are assured of a new one, an everlasting one that will never, never, never perish. This is what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5, which I read you earlier. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. This one will last eternally, one forever to be enjoyed, a body which through endless ages withstands. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our heavenly habitation. If indeed for to this we have been aspiring to be clothed through a glorious transformation. Then we shall not be found naked nor bare. For us, glorious garments, Christ does now prepare. Our third and final thought today, the death of Jacob, who is Israel. It's verse 33. It begins with these words. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons. Again, it notes that Jacob had commanded his sons. What was spoken was expected to be with all of their participation. He'd already secured a guarantee on oath that Joseph would ensure his burial there in Canaan. But now we see that all of the sons are expected to be a part of it. The meticulous wording concerning his burial is especially important to note because Jacob didn't say these things when he previously charged Joseph. Back in chapter 47, when that charge was given, only these words were recorded. Now if I have found favor in your sight, this is Jacob speaking to Joseph, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Instead, he waited until all of the covenant sons were present to say what he said. 
such seemingly unimportant things are actually of the highest importance as we look directly into the mind of God as the Spirit has revealed it in his word. The purchase of the cave and the field were in anticipation of the resurrection, which would be realized in Messiah. All of the sons of Israel were to participate in ushering him into the world as sons of the covenant, as the people of Israel. This is why Jacob waited to speak these words in front of all of the sons. Their hope was to be that great hope, which will be seen throughout all of the rest of the prophetic writings, right up until the moment that John the Baptist cries out those wondrous words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is Israel who would carry the blessing and also bear the burden of the law, which only Jesus Christ could fulfill. Jacob's words were a command which looked forward to the wondrous day when the world of terrified fallen men would be bought back by the Lord and he would be able to just fellowship with us in an intimate way for all of eternity. And now at the end of a long life filled with blessings and trials, joys and sorrows, he was ready to receive his final reward He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last. Jacob was born in the year 2169 from the creation of the world to Isaac and Rebekah. He was the younger of twins, and the life that he lived was used in the most astonishing way to show us pictures of redemptive history. The seven dispensations of time were all seen in his movements in and out of and throughout the land of Canaan. The two exiles of his people that were to come from him were also pictured in events from his life. And the majestic work of Jesus Christ was seen again and again and again in his actions and in his movements. God directed each and every step of his life for us to behold the marvelous work of Jesus Christ. Jacob lived 147 years. They were full years, years of abundance. And he finally expired in the year 2316 from the creation of the world. The most recorded and detailed life in the book of Genesis finally came to an end in a most peaceful way. It says that he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last. Having blessed his sons from a sitting position, certainly being sustained by the anointing of the Spirit upon him, he now felt content to lie back down. And to enter into the splendor of eternity. Verse 33 finishes with these words and was gathered to his people. Just a few short minutes earlier, he knew that his time was ending. Now it is realized. The soul left the body, thus demonstrating once again that man is more than just a physical being. His request to be buried in Canaan implies that the body is separate from the soul and that the souls of his ancestors were in a separate place than where their bodies lay. For him to be gathered to his people now and for his body to be buried more than 70 days later in another country shows two distinct occurrences, one spiritual and one physical. There is Jacob, the man who walked in this fallen world and who was destined to die. And there is Israel who fellowships with his God and who continues on through his people after him. It is to and through this group of people that the Messiah eventually came. The hope of fallen man was realized in the person of Jesus Christ, Jacob's greatest descendant. And that hope still rings true today. If you are found in Adam when you die, you will never receive the glorious promises of heaven and eternal life. But if you are found in Christ, 
They are yours by a covenant which was settled in his own blood. If you would so, please give me just another moment to tell you how you too can have the assurance of eternal life and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This is the penalty that we're going to face. The wages of sin is death. If we say we haven't sinned, then we're calling the Bible a book of lies. We all know we have. And because of that, we receive our wages, which is death. Wages are something you earn. You go to your job on Monday morning and you work for five days. And at the end of the week, you get your pay. You've earned that. A gift is something you cannot earn. And the Bible goes on. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's something that we cannot in any way merit. God simply hands it to us and he says, if you will receive this, then I will save you and I will put you into a new federal head. Right now you're in your father Adam who sinned and you sinned in Adam and you're already condemned, but I will allow you the honor of moving to my son, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay your sin debt, and I will move you from Adam to him. But the gift of God, a gift, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the only thing you need to do in order to be saved, it's not to give money to your church, it's not to stop eating pork or any crazy thing that people say. The only thing you need to do is to say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I need you to save me. I want you to forgive me of my sins, and I want you to lead me to my heavenly Father. And I know I can do it through you, and it can happen no other way. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's done. So please, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, do it today. And he will. He's fully capable of doing so. And he is fully capable of bringing you back out of the same grave that he came out of. He prevailed over death. Death has no power on him. And if you move from Adam to Christ, you are in Christ. And therefore, death has no power over you. If you see the logic, the Bible's very meticulous about these simple words, the 12 tribes of Israel, being in Adam, being in Christ. Do it today. Call on Jesus and be saved. Our closing verses from Isaiah chapter 44. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Next week is Genesis chapter 50, our last chapter of the Bible, of the book of Genesis. We've been in Genesis now for 128 sermons. Next week will be our 129th Genesis sermon. Then we'll have one more after that, and we'll be done with that precious book that we've been going through for these past three years. And we're going to go into a special treat for a few sermons before we get back into the book of Exodus. It'll be wonderful. It's going to be something I just am so excited about. That'll be our... Like I said, it'll be called uh, The Burial of Jacob. Before we uh, have our weekly poem, and just so the people that are here today, they may not know this, but I've made a poem out of the book of Genesis. Every single time we've done a sermon, I've taken the sermon text for that, and I put it into a poetic form. And so we've got this one, and we've got two more, and the book of Genesis will be in poem format, and then I'll post it on the internet so people can read it and now, I'm not trying to change the Bible. This is not a book of Genesis. It's a poem of the book of Genesis, okay? So I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to manipulate God's word or something. I'll tell you this, though, before we read our poem, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called The Death of Jacob. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father to them addressed. And he blessed them as the Bible does tell. 
each one according to his own blessing he blessed. Then he charged them and to them said, I am to be gathered to my people, but it's all right. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the days ahead, that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, for a burial place as a possession. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, too. And there they buried Leah when her days were through. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth, as each of you is now aware. And when Jacob had finished his son's commanding, he drew up into the bed his feet and breathed his last as his life was ending and was gathered to his people in a sleep so sweet. Jacob's death, though sad, is not the end of his story. He continues on through those who are his seed. And he will someday be raised to eternal glory because of his faith in Christ, his greatest deed. And we, like Jacob, can take hold of the same promise. Eternal life for us can also be our own guarantee by simple faith in the work of our Lord Jesus. In that one act, we can hold on to such wondrous surety. Thank you, O God, for you have done marvelous things for us. Thank you, O God, for our sure hope because of Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of Jacob. Thank you for the wondrous, wondrous life of Jacob that has pictured so many astonishing things that it's beyond imagination. We'd have to go back and revisit the entire scenario of his life just to remember a small portion of the things that you used him for, picturing Christ, picturing redemption, picturing the history of the world. Thank you for the life of Jacob and for all of your superior word. Thank you for every word in it and the love and the majesty that you have shown us in it. And I would pray even for the people right now that are lobbing bombs into Israel, that their eyes would be open to Jesus and that they'd give up on their hatred of the people you've restored back to the land. Then I pray for all of the people that are coming against Christianity, including our president and all of the other people that are morally perverse that they would just humble themselves and they would realize the majesty of what you have done, that you've done it all for us and all you want us to do is just to call on you and to humble our hearts and to turn to you. And whatever it takes to get them and us to that state, no matter what it is, humble us to that point so that you will be glorified through our cries out to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayers, being with us and guiding us. Please bless each person here as they go to their respective places today. And uh, we'll be sure to uh, remember the act of Jesus Christ our Lord when we take communion in just a moment, thanking him for what he did and remembering him until he comes again. We pray this and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. When we uh, take the Lord's Supper, we get the words of the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians. We take it right out of the Bible. Paul writes uh, these particular words for us as our instruction for the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have uttered these words to his father, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, 
He also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGafet. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let's take a moment and reflect on why Christ came and how it affects us personally before we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Amen. Mm -hmm. Ah, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for allowing us to come and participate in the Lord's table once again. <clears throat> we thank you for our Lord Jesus and what he went through so that we don't have to suffer that for all eternity. We thank you for the promise of eternal life and living in your presence for all the glorious future ahead. And we look forward to that day. And the greatest blessing of all will to be in your presence. Forget the streets of gold. Forget the precious pearls that are the 12 gates. Those things are just part of the creation. But it's you that our soul seeks after and that we pant after. We look forward to seeing you, O oh God. And we look forward to it because of the glorious work of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.